John this morning, the second chapter of John's Gospel. I do appreciate the words of Brother Art. I think you can detect someone in him that uh, has a real heart and burning desire to take the Gospel to other people. Great to have that encouragement. Thank you for being with us today. John, the second chapter, would have us read the first 11 verses of this chapter. John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted, or a better translation would be lacked or ran out of, when they wanted or lacked wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw some out now, and bear it unto the governor of the feast. And they bore it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not from where it was, but the servants who drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. We are in the midst of a description by the Apostle John of one rather extraordinary week in the life of our Lord. It is a description of the first week in the life of our Lord's public ministry. And that's very interesting because some of you may realize that the Gospel of John closes with the description of another week, the last week of our Lord's life on this earth. So much of John makes no attempt to really be strictly chronological in describing the earthly life of Christ because much in the beginning is devoted to one week in the life of our Lord, much at the end is devoted to one week. You'll notice that this week begins back in chapter 1 with the Jews coming down to John's baptism. In verse 19, we see these Levites and priests coming out of Jerusalem, asking John several questions. Who are you and what in the world are you doing down here? John describes his ministry. If there's one among you you don't know, I'm not worthy to unloose his shoes, but he's coming. I'm the forerunner. And then you'll notice in verse 29, here's the next day, the very next day after that day, John sees Jesus coming to him and declares, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I spoke. And then in verse 35, notice the next day, this will be the third day now, 
John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And these two disciples quit following John the Baptist and started following Jesus. One of the two was called Andrew. He goes and finds his brother, Peter. The other disciple, the other is uh, not known. He's a, a known disciple, I guess we would say. But we might speculate that that other disciple was, in fact, the Apostle John, who quite often in his own gospel does not name himself. And then notice in verse 43, the day following, now this is the fourth day, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and finds Philip and saith unto him, Follow me, and now we have the description of how Philip goes and finds this other disciple, Nathaniel, and tells him that we have found the one of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. And Nathaniel, of course, is quite believing, quite gullible. He says, can anything good come out of Nazarite when they tell him he's from Nazareth? But Nathaniel comes to our Lord and he follows him. So we find that in these four, first four days from the time this account has begun, that Jesus now has five disciples who follow him. And you'll notice in verse 43 of chapter 1, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee. Now, Jesus is down uh, closer to Judea, across on the other side of the Jordan River, and he is indeed about a three-day walk from Galilee. And our account in chapter 2, verse 1, begins... The third day, there is this marriage in Cana of Galilee. So we would assume that they have been walking now from three days since that last day, which was the fourth day of this week. We've now come to the conclusion of this seven-day week. For whatever significance that has, we're now covering a time frame of seven days, the first seven days of the earthly ministry of our Lord. And it finds our Lord and at least these five disciples at this wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana of Galilee is significant in the fact that in chapter 21 of John's Gospel, we learn that Nathaniel, the last of these five disciples to follow Jesus, is in fact from Cana of Galilee. This is Nathaniel's hometown. It is speculated by some scholars that, in fact, the family of Jesus at this point has left Nazareth and has relocated to Cana and lives there in this little village. Now, that's possible, but more likely the family is still located at Nazareth. The best location that scholars have for the city of Cana is only seven or eight miles away from the city of Nazareth. So this is a little village, a small village, very close to the area where Jesus himself was reared. It may well be the wedding of a relative. It seems that that is in fact the case by what is about to occur in the description of this wedding feast. At the very least, it is a family that is well known to Jesus and his family, to Mary, his mother, to his brothers and sisters, or I should more properly say his half-brothers and half-sisters. They have all been invited to this wedding. Jesus has been invited and his disciples are called or invited to this marriage. But it is here, at this wedding feast, at the end of the first day, the first day, first week of Jesus' earthly ministry, that the first miracle of our Lord is about to be performed. I would have you knowledgeable, at least, that towards the end of the second century of the church's history, there were all sorts of stories and fables that grew up about miracles that Jesus performed when he was a little boy, very fanciful 
things like as a toddler he is supposed to turn clay pigeons into the real thing, uh, that sort of stuff. But it's all apocryphal. It's not true. It was. It came about 200 years after the actual life and times of Jesus, just the figment of someone's imagination. We have John's own testimony that this is the first of his miracles. You'll notice that the whole thing begins with what seems to us to be a rather bland, blah statement of Mary, his mother. She comes to her son, Jesus, and simply makes the statement, they have no wine. Now that seems innocent enough, isn't it? But I would have you recognize that there is implicit in this statement a request It's not just, as mothers are prone to do when they come to their sons, they say, you know, there is no wine. They're just not trying to tell them that for their own enlightenment and their own instruction. They're telling them that so they'll do something about it. And that is exactly what is going on here. Mary is coming and telling her son they have no wine with an implicit request that he is to do something to remedy that situation. Now, in a marriage in Galilee in that day, we know from the customs of the day that it was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide wine for a wedding. Now, that at first thought might not seem to be a very great responsibility. So what? Wine was the drink of the day. They're living in great country. This is a place where many vineyards are are grown. So uh, that would seem very natural. But may I remind you that it was their custom that a marriage would go on for most of the time, at least a week, sometimes as long as two weeks. I mean, a marriage was a big deal. It's a big shindig, as we would say here in the South. Art, you can pick up on that. Yeah, shindig. That's another one of our little sayings. This was a big shindig. It's a big to-do, as we say. And uh, it would be a sign of great embarrassment. Now, this is not the end of the world if you run out of wine. But remember that you are in a culture where losing face is a big deal. To be shamed in a situation or a circumstance like this is considered uh, an enormous thing. It is an embarrassment to the bridegroom that he should run out of wine. And the mother of Jesus has come to him basically telling him what the situation is with an implicit request sort of understood between the lines that now you do something about this. That would lead us to believe that indeed Jesus may well have been close kin to the person being married. I think that's most likely. It also raises an interesting thought, is that where is Joseph in all of this? Why did not Mary go to her husband Joseph and apprise him of the fact that they've run out of wine? Well, ever since that trip to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12 years old, when they lost him, you remember, for a few days there in the temple, we have not seen from nor heard from Joseph since. And it is usually thought, and I I think with good reason, that Joseph probably is dead at this point. He is no longer, as we say, in the picture. And that fact then shows additional light, sheds light on this whole passage. That 
Jesus is not just here by himself. He is there with his family. If indeed Joseph, his father, is dead, who is the eldest son in the family? Well, it's Jesus. He, as was supposed by the people, being the son of Joseph and Mary, he would be the eldest son. The responsibility for the maintenance of the family would then fall on his shoulders as the eldest son. I want to show you this is quite a family. Turn over to Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, we find them back in the hometown of Nazareth. And like I say, I think the evidence is pretty strong that they're still living here at this particular point in time. In Mark chapter 6, when he goes and teaches there back in his hometown, the people say this. Mark 6 verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? Now elsewhere, he's called the son of the carpenter. But notice here, Jesus is referred to as the carpenter. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, notice no mention of Joseph except as one of the son's names here. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Notice sisters, plural. And they were offended at him. Do you realize that the family consists of, at the very least, the mother, Mary, Jesus himself, four brothers are listed here, perhaps more, but at least four brothers, and sisters, plural, there's at least two sisters. So there's six siblings and one mother. Do you understand this is a pretty sizable family here? That whole family has gone apparently in mass to this wedding feast. Apparently it is someone near of kin or certainly very close to this family for they all have been invited special guests to come and partake of this wedding feast. And in the middle of it all, they have run out of wine. And so Mary is coming to her eldest son, apprising him of that fact with the implicit sort of understanding here that, you know, the monkey's on your back. It's it's up to you to supply what is lacking here in the wine. Well, notice how Jesus replies to his mother. It is a rather unusual reply. He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Now that seems a rather cold way to respond to your mother. The word woman here, it's sort of difficult for us to accurately translate that word. It does mean woman, literally. Uh, but, but it was being used here in a way that sometimes it could be rude, but it, not necessarily. So it's sort of like our word lady. If I'm talking to my wife in a conversation and I call her by the name lady, it, it might be a good thing. I might say my wife is a real lady. On the other hand, if I say, well, have it your way, lady, (laughs) that's a rather distancing thing. That's a rather rude thing to say. This is sort of the way the word is used here in the sense of woman. On the one hand, it's not necessarily a word that is intended as an insult. Because this is the very word, by the way, that our Lord used from the cross when he turned to the apostle John and said, woman, or he turned to his mother, woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. It's the very word he uses there can be used in a very tender way. On the other hand, here it's clear that the word woman 
is used by our Lord to put some distance, as we would say, between himself and his earthly mother. And I say that's very obvious here because of the fact that he follows that word, woman, with the statement, what have I to do with thee? Or we might paraphrase it, what in the world is, how does that concern me? What does that have to do with you and me? In other words, she is coming to him implicitly requesting that he do something about the situation. And his reply is, why are you putting that load on me, woman? And notice that he then adds this little statement. Mine hour is not yet come. Now, Jesus, throughout John's Gospel, talks about his hour, or his time. A little later, look at John 4. He is, uh, did I say 4? Should be 6. Nope, nope, nope. It's in here somewhere. Seven, John 7. Notice that uh, he is having a discussion with his brothers. Now, these are his earthly brothers, those four names that we just had in Mark 6. And they are telling him to go on up to Jerusalem. Uh, look in verse 4 of John 7. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. In other words, go up and stretch your stuff. Go on up to Jerusalem, show them what you got. That's what they're saying. Notice his reply in verse 6. Then Jesus said unto them, My Time is not yet come. Very similar to what he just told his mother. Mine hour is not yet come. And you say, well, what in the world is this hour? Go to John 12. John 12, verse 23. And by the way, you can see from John 12, verse 1, we have started into this period of Scripture that talks about the last week of Jesus' life. I told you we were in the first week. Here's the beginning of the last week here in John 12, verse 1. And notice in verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now this hour is not to be understood literally, but Jesus is simply saying the time is at hand. The time's here. My hour is now come. Look in John chapter 17, the prayer that he prays on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be arrested the very evening. John 17, verse 1, These words spoke Jesus, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. So his hour is the hour of his humiliation, exaltation. And I realize this is the great paradox of the cross. That at the very moment of the cross, when he is in the midst of this horrible humiliation, his glory, his exaltation is being displayed. And that's what we're to understand from the Gospel of John. This is the great glorification of Christ. The hour of His glorification is at hand when He hangs on that cross. That hour has not yet come. And Jesus basically in making that statement to His mother is reminding us that something new has changed in the relationship that He now has with His earthly family and His earthly situation. Let me put it this way. A week earlier had he received this request. He probably would have responded by going and doing whatever is necessary to get some more wine. I mean, he's the oldest son. 
for a way that perhaps we don't understand completely, the responsibility of supplying the wine through the bridegroom, this one who's close to the family at the very least, maybe close of kin to the family, that, that's a responsibility that needs to be done. But now Jesus says there is something else in the picture. Something has happened. He has now begun his public ministry, a public ministry that has as its aim an hour. Three and a half years down the road, but an hour, a time when he is to be glorified. And everything from this point onward is pointing and going in the direction of that hour. Do you understand what I'm saying? No longer... Do the earthly relationships that he has sustained to his family in the some 30 years of his life previous to this, no longer are those the top priority. There is something else going on. He has begun his public ministry. And the relationship that he now maintains to his family, even to his own mother, must take second place to that great work of glorification there at the cross. Do you see that even Mary, his mother, is not allowed by Jesus to have an inside track to his attention, to have first claims upon His power and upon His grace. And I say that contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches in its Mariology, where it would tell you to pray to Mary because, see, she has the inside track. She has the, you know, the sort of the secret route to her son. And she can get him to do things you can't get him to do, so you pray to him. That's exactly the opposite of what is being taught here. Even his own mother must take her place Not as a mother, but as a believer. And that's precisely what she does when she turns to the servants and says whatever he says. Whatever. Do it. She came to him as his mother. She left as a believer. There's a great transformation taking place right here in the relationship that Jesus is sustaining to his earthly family, even to his own mother. Now we have described that there are these six water pots hewn out of stone in the Jews' law. If you put things in an earthen vessel, the earthen vessel could be contaminated if what was put in it was unclean. The earthen vessel became unclean because, as many of you know, earthen pots tend to absorb what you put in them. You know, you fill an earthen pot with water, it tends to leak, it tends to absorb the water. So it's hard to completely clean an earthen pot. Therefore, in the use of the temple, a lot of times, if you ever put something in an earthen vessel, when you got through with it, you just broke it because you couldn't clean it completely. On the other hand, a metal vessel you could take, you can scrub, you can clean it up, and you could use it over again. Now, what's going on here is that these barrels, and I don't know how else what words to use, they're hewn out of stone, so they are certainly more desirable to store water in than earthen vessels. But they're large. 
They contain the description here of two or three firkins apiece. Now, a firkin was roughly equivalent to nine gallons in our measurement. So these are large water pots hewn out of stone, solid rock, we would say. And they contain large amounts, anywhere between 18 to 27 gallons of water apiece. This is a pretty good size container of water, and there are six of them. So we're talking in terms of somewhere between 100 and 150 gallons all told. Now these pots are not just sitting there uh, for decoration, and they're not just sitting there in case somebody gets thirsty and needs a drink. They're sitting there for a purpose. In the Jews' way of doing things, they had to maintain a strict sense of ceremonial cleanness. And so there was washings before you ate. There was washings after you ate. There was washings between the courses of every meal. They were constantly going to the water pots and washing. And apparently in the course of the week, in the course of this wedding, they have used up, apparently, the water in these water pots. Or at least they're close to using them up. It is now that our Lord directs that the servants, and some have speculated that his own disciples may have been acting as servants here, and that's quite possible, that his servants go and fill these water pots with water. Then he directs that they draw some of the water, water that John tells us has now been made wine, and they're to take it to the governor of the feast. We'd call him an MC. He's the host. He's the fellow that's sort of running the show. He's not the bridegroom. Notice he speaks to the bridegroom. But he's sort of the fellow that's in charge of the festivities. And what is so interesting here is that we have sort of what we would say an unsolicited testimonial. This fellow has no idea what has transpired. He has no idea where this stuff has come from. But once upon tasting this wine, made wine now from the water... He calls out to the bridegroom, and notice how implicit there is in this, that it is the bridegroom's responsibility to supply the wine here. He calls to the bridegroom, let me turn my page so I can read it to you here, and says to him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and then when men have well drunk, that which is worse, but thou, notice you have kept the good wine until now. So in other words, here's this fellow who knows nothing about the source of this wine, sort of giving an unsolicited testimonial to the fact that this is not just wine, this is good wine, this is the best wine, and you, contrary to expectation, have kept the best till the last. Now he doesn't know what he's testifying to. He has no idea what has transpired. But John adds that it was the servants and the disciples that knew what had transpired. All right, let's, that's what happened. Let's delve for a few moments into the meaning of all of this. D.A. Carson up in Canada a few weeks ago pointed out that the Gospel of John is written in such a way that it's clear that John intended for you to read it more than once. It's one of those books that you read it for the first time and you see things and you sort of make mental notes about it. And then later in the Gospel of John, you have those things explained to you. And then when you go back and read it the second time, after you've had the explanation, you are able to pick up on this stuff. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, you don't really have it fully explained till the end. And then the next time you go back and read it, it makes more sense to you than it did the first time through. And this is a good illustration of that. Back in chapter 1, you recall that John has described to us the Word. The Word that was in the beginning with God. The Word which was God. The creative Word. All things were made by Him. Without Him were not was not anything made. The same was in the beginning with God and so forth. And then in chapter 1, verse 14, we have this statement. And the Word was made flesh... And dwelt literally tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. This word, the eternal word. Eternally God. Became flesh. Dwelt among us. And says John, we saw his glory. Not all men, but we did. We saw his glory. And what John does now in the rest of his gospel, he gives us eight glimpses of the glory of Jesus. It's quite remarkable that John's gospel only contains eight miracles. Do you realize how remarkable that is? You can go to the gospel of Mark and you can find eight miracles in one chapter. Just this happened and this happened, all these miraculous things. John's gospel is very different in that there are only eight Miracles, and John doesn't even call them by the word miracle. I realize we have that as our translation in the King James here, but in John 1 verse 11, John 2 verse 11, John says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. The word miracle there is not the normal word for miracle, it's the word sign. This beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. It's John, one of John's favorite words for the works of Jesus. They are signs. Now, when I say that something is a sign, what do we mean? We mean that it's supposed to signify something. I mean, you know, a miracle can be a miracle. I mean, we we can, uh, you know, cause something to appear out of nothing here, and that would be a sign unto you. The angel said to the shepherds, You shall find the babe wrapped in what? Swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, that wasn't miraculous that Jesus was... Wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feed trough. It was very unusual. And it was a sign. It signified that this is the one that we're identifying here. Set him apart. Now, so John is using the same word here. This beginning of signs, and there's eight of them in John's gospel. Here's the first. Yes, it is a miracle. But it is a miracle that is to mean something. It signifies something. It declares the glory. That's what John goes on to say here in verse 11. He manifested his glory to us in this sign. So what is the sign? What does it mean? Well, at the very least, it speaks of the glory of Christ's power. He is able to take water and turn it into wine. Do you realize that that is what the alchemists were trying to do all through the Middle Ages? Trying to figure out how to turn stuff from one substance into another? Of course, they weren't quite interested in wine. They had their sights set on a little higher product here. They were generally trying to turn something like lead into gold. To transform something from one form 
to another. And notice that in this sign, we have a glimpse of what John has already told us in John 1, in the early verses, that this is the creative agent. The Word that has become flesh is the same Word that made all things. I mean, if you've got the power to turn water into wine, you probably were the one involved in the creation of the water in the first place. That makes sense? Somebody who can do the one can do the other. It sort of depicts the fact that if you don't believe that Jesus is the Word who was the agent of creating all things, then how else can you explain this miracle? And yet at the same time, what has happened here is not, shall we say, not really creation. This is not creation ex nihilo, something out of nothing. It is really what we would call transformation. The ability to make something new out of that which is old. That's really what's going on. Not the formation of something completely new out of nothing, what it truly is creation, but transformation. Something different out of what is at hand. Now again, John's Gospel is very interesting in that almost always there will be teaching that goes along with the sign. Have you ever noticed that in John's Gospel? Over in John 6, we have Jesus feeding the multitudes with the loaves. Right? Five loaves feeds 5,000 people. And no sooner do we have the conclusion of the account of that miracle than John relates to us Jesus' instruction concerning himself as what? Bread. The bread of life. Do you see the connection between the teaching there with the miracle that has just transpired. We have the same thing a little later in John chapter 11. We have Jesus showing up at the tomb of Lazarus, four days, stinking dead, and raising him to life. And in the midst of that miracle, what is being taught is Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he be dead, yet shall he live. He that lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you understand that you have the teaching that goes right hand in hand with the sign? You see that? You want to know whether he can do what he claims to do in his teaching? Look at the sign. Now, that then raises a question. What teaching goes along with this sign? And it's not an easy question to answer because there really doesn't seem to be anything. John just says he did this and he manifested his glory. Well, what is it that we are being taught here? What, what is this telling us? What is this validating in the teaching of our Lord? Well, I believe it is what we read in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus comes to our Lord by night and says, you know, we've decided, whoever we is, we have decided to uh, put our stamp of approval on you. We've decided that you must be genuine. We've decided that you must be a teacher sent from God. And Jesus says, Except ye be born again, ye shall not see the kingdom of God. And this fellow is no doubt taken aback. And says, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean? How in the world can that be? How could I enter again into my mother's womb when I'm old? 
And Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except ye be born of water and of blood, ye, from spirit and of water, ye shall not enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? Unless ye be transformed, made new, regenerated, reborn, unless something new comes of the old, unless there is a new man in the place of the old man, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I believe that's the teaching that this miracle confirms. Do you believe that Jesus, in fact, has the power to make new what has been old? Can you rebirth? Can you regenerate? Well, look at this miracle. Here, he transformed water into wine. So, at the very least, it indicates that to us. And secondly, he turned water into wine. Now, I, I hate, in a way, to have to use the word wine. Because of all our cultural taboos and traditions regarding wine. Okay? And the, our problem is, is that we want to impose our 20th century thinking our cultural expectations regarding alcoholic beverages on this first century situation. And when we do that, we completely miss the whole point of the parable. You know, we want to argue about whether this was alcoholic or non-alcoholic, whether this is grape juice or real wine, you know. And that really begs the question, it doesn't make any difference. It probably was alcoholic, to be quite honest with you. That's all the evidence would point in that direction. But I would remind you that the Jews generally didn't eat and drink their wine straight. They generally uh, cut it with about three parts water at least, sometimes as much as six or ten parts water. So it would generally affect your kidneys before it did your mind. Uh, <laughs> but, but that misses the whole point. For you see, what is being taught here is that the Messianic age is beginning. Because the Jews are expecting the Messiah to come as the heavenly bridegroom and to invite the nation to his wedding feast and he will supply the wine. That's the idea. And this is a sign to Israel that the Messiah is here. And you go on in the New Testament and notice how often this figure of a wedding feast is employed. The idea of wine, that you don't put the... What is it? New wine into the old skins, the old things. This whole imagery is developed in the New Testament. And the whole idea of the gospel invitation is to come to the wedding table of the Messiah. Was that not the parable we talked about this morning? The king has made a marriage for his son. It's already come and dine. The idea is there's plenty and when you go to a wedding, I don't know about you, but unless you're, you know, with the artsy crowd out in Hollywood, you don't expect to go in there and drink water, do you? I mean, if you're saving the good stuff, you're saving it for a wedding, right? Do you invite your guests to your wedding and then serve them water? And especially notice this just isn't any water. This is water out of these great big barrels where they wash their hands. This isn't drinking water. But it's water where they have meticulously been trying to cleanse themselves, trying to keep the law, trying to be clean. 
And what Jesus has done is take their washing water and turned it into a beverage fit for consumption at a wedding. That's the point. That's what is the, John is developing all of this, the Holy Ghost inspiring him to bring to our attention that the Messiah, the Bridegroom, is now at hand. And then, lastly, there's something about the way the miracle was performed, the manner of its performance. I mean, if Jesus was just a charlatan, a magician, in our use of the word, the David Copperfield of his day, wouldn't you have expected him to gather all the people? Now, y'all come watch. Everybody pay attention now. Here, I'm going to show you. Show you what I can do. Everybody want all of you to see this now. I mean, wouldn't that be what you expected? And instead, when it's all said and done, who knows about this? Well, just a few folks. Just the servants involved in the serving and Jesus' disciples. They see it. Everybody else drank of the wine that had been made wine from water. But they didn't see miracle. Do, do you see my point here? It was revealed to some, but not to all. You see, put this power in the hands of anyone else. Put it in your hands. Put it in my hands. And I don't think we'd be turning water into wine, would we? I'd be seeing if I could turn this uh, pulpit into a big old bar of gold. That's what I'd be doing. If I had that kind of power, if I could perform those kinds of works... I'd make sure I never went hungry. I'd make sure I always had plenty of money. Wouldn't you? And notice that here, as so often in the ministry of our Lord, when He does these works, they're done for others, not for Himself. And they're not done flashily and showily, with great circus attention, tooting His horn. They're done quietly, out of sight sometimes. And other times, he would say to those who had received such miracles, tell no man. You understand how uncommon that is? For someone to have this kind of power and not be full of themselves, to put omnipotency in the hands of a humble man. Humility and omnipotency don't normally go hand in hand. We're getting a glimpse here that here is a person that's different from any other person. He is human. He's as human as you and I. He's just like us. Sin being accepted. And keep in mind, sin doesn't make you human. Adam was human before he sinned. He's just as human as you and me, and yet there is something about him that shows that he is a divine person. There's something unique about this person. And oh, it captures our attention. It's a flash, as it were, a flash of glory. Glory, so often in Scripture, uh, spoken of in the, under the symbol of a light. 
And it's like what John is describing here is that most of the time, the veil of Christ's humanity veils His glory. We really don't see this brightness, this, this brilliance. But every now and then, what John is describing, eight times in his gospel, there's a flash. And we saw it. And in this flash, in this glimpse, we got to look at who he was. And we fell in love with him. This beautiful person. This wonderful person. This amazing person. We saw him. And his love ravished our souls. And we don't know much about anything, but we know one thing. We must have him. We're like that Shulamite maiden in the Song of Solomon. Where is he? Where'd he go? I've got to find him. The daughters of Jerusalem come and says, why are you so hooked on him? There's a lot of boys, a lot of guys. What's so special about him? Oh, he's the fairest of 10,000. You know, his, his mouth is most sweet. He's altogether lovely. And by the time she's through, they're saying, well, well we sort of like to find that fellow too. You, you, you tell us when you find him, we'd like to know him. You see, that's it. That the Christian, and this is what Christianity is all about, it's the heart and soul of what salvation is, is that we get a look at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We get a glimpse. We get a look. And we have seen something there that has ravished our souls and it will not let us go. Oh, I know that today we think of salvation merely in terms of a decision, a walk down an aisle, a, a, a little sinner's prayer. My friend, it's more than that. It is transformation. It's being made new. It's seeing something. It's having the glory of Jesus Christ revealed to our souls. You say, where's your, where's your scripture for that? Second Corinthians 4. Paul talks about we proclaim this gospel and it's hidden to the lost, but God has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've seen His glory. And John's gospel lays out eight glimpses of the glory of Jesus. Do you see it? Do you see it? I don't care what you've done. I don't care how religious you've been. I tell you, I appreciated the testimony of our brother Ralph before he died. Moses and I went over and saw him just before his surgery, and uh, would eventually uh, that would eventually take his life. And uh, he was relating to us. He says, "If religion," he said, "I've tried every religion there is. I've been baptized three times. I've done everything everybody ever told me to do." And I said, "Well, Ralph," I said, "You do realize you're not." very possible you're not going to come out of this thing alive. He says, yes or no? I said, well, what is your hope? If you stand before God, what is your hope? And he says, I only have one hope, and that's Jesus Christ. You see, that's a sign somebody's caught a glimpse of this glory. Till then, we're just like hogs rooting around in the walla. We got our heads down, Looking for our next meal. That's about it. That's how we live our lives. Never look up. 
just looking down for our next meal. And somebody can toss a diamond in there and do you see it? Well, yeah, I see it. But to me, it's just another rock. And I'm no more interested in it than the rock next to it. I'm looking for my next meal. And so we live our lives rooting around in the wallah. Brutish. Sensual. Never seeing the kingdom of God. My prayer is that God might get a hold of you. John wrote these things, he said. I wrote it so that ye might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. May God in His Word today get a hold of your heart. If you know Him not, I pray that He might manifest the glory of this person. We heard Brother Art tell us about their plans to go to Chad. He didn't tell you the whole story about this is out there in the middle of the Sahara Desert, basically. Temperature is 120 degrees. One of the poorest nations on earth. Why in the world? Why in the world would anybody leave America and go to a place like that? Well, he's either crazy or he's a Christian. He's caught a glimpse of that glory. And whatever, whatever the cost, oh, it's so small compared to what his Savior has done for him. That's what moves us. That's what spurs us on. May God bless his word in your heart today. Let's pray. Father, may we not be as the mere pigs of the walla. You've created us to be more than that. May our eyes catch a glimpse of something beyond this veil of tears full of heartache and sorrow. May we see that there's a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And may we see the glory of the one who reigns over it all. Father, if never before, may we fall in love with Jesus today as we consider this glimpse of glory that we see that all this power, all this omnipotence is in the hands, the nail-scarred hands of one who gave himself for us. Our God has died for us. The Creator has sacrificed himself for the creature, the maker for the thing made, the one who was owed, gave himself for the sake of the ore. Father, may we never get over it. May it grab us. May it apprehend us. And may that glimpse of glory transform us. May we be changed from glory to glory.
Fulfill your will among us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.